0: Broadcasting live, high atop the Sunset Strip, deep in the heart of Tinseltown, via the World Wide Web at www.edumbrocksradio.com. It's the Edom Rocks Radio Show. Oh, my goodness! And now, your host, Son Edom. In First Timothy, Paul states that he is the worst of sinners, referring to his persecution of Christians, I'm sure. But God transformed Paul from his old wicked ways and created a new person who would go on to author parts of the Bible, and become a martyr himself for the gospel. Joining us today is Dan DelZell, who wrote an article, When God Saves the Worst Sinner, which talks about the transformation that Paul had in his life, and how you too can transform your life and change from a Saul to a Paul. Dan DelZell, pastor of Wellspring Church in Papillion, Nebraska, joining us. And, and Pastor, one of the things I've uh, read in the last little while, is an article that you wrote. The topic was, When Christ Saves the Worst of Sinners. And it was an article talking about uh, the Apostle Paul, who at one time was a killer of Christians, uh, known as Saul. And then God turned his life around, and he came, uh, went on to become an apostle, an author of a significant portion of the New Testament of the Bible. So it started me thinking about some things and wanted to get you on to discuss it. And so I thought one of the first things we can kind of maybe go over is that when it comes to uh, Christianity or our faith in Christ, it seems like a lot of people either feel that they need to be perfect, or maybe they put on this facade on Sundays that everything's okay, everything's perfect because I need it to be in order to be at the church. But in fact, that's actually not the real picture of what Jesus is all about. He actually came to save the sinner and not the saint. Uh, Would that be accurate?
1: That is exactly right, Son. You know, I think of uh, our Lord's words where he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so just as you said there, uh, it's natural for people to think, well, you know, I kind of have to put on my my best front, I kind of have to appear to people to be somewhat righteous or holy, I can't let them really see what I might be struggling with, or some of my own temptations or sins or so, uh, so forth. But you know, um, actually, the Lord is not asking for that at all. In fact, uh, we see throughout Scripture that, that God is never impressed by man uh, pretending to be something, by man trying to put on a show. Uh, we see that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. What the Lord is looking for uh, in, in a person's Son, is sincerity, um, contrition, sorrow over one's sin, and then just a humble turning to the Lord for help, for forgiveness. Uh, for uh, for strength and for grace. And so when Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, what he was really saying is, I've not come to call the self-righteous. I've not come to call those who, who think they've already got it all together, or who are pretending like they've got it all together, or, or who are looking down on others, which, of course, in the New Testament, you know, we see the Pharisees. Uh, doing that uh, quite regularly. So yeah, I think you hit that uh, on the head, you know, when, when the Lord talked about not calling the righteous, but sinners. And and I know for some people, you know, it's like, well, I don't really want to wear that label, or I don't want to think about myself as a sinner. But you know, the reality, Son, is this. We've all broken God's laws, we've all committed sin, and and so acknowledging that before God, recognizing that, hey, I'm a sinner, like everyone else, I need a Savior, I need Christ, uh, that's part of this stepping to the Lord, turning to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and and being forgiven of our sins.
0: Have you found out, or over the, it seems like everybody's offended by something, have you come to any conclusion about people being offended by the term sin, or being called a sinner?
1: Is you that... know, I think at times, yes, Don. I think sometimes uh, folks seem to take offense at that, more often than not, though, I think what is offensive to uh to almost all of us is if somebody is using that term and they're looking down on someone else because supposedly their sin is worse than um you know than my sin and and this is where things really get um uh they, they become a problem because um the moment a person starts to look at someone else's sin as being bigger than their own. Um, they're putting up a huge uh, stumbling block between their own soul and the Lord. You know, I recently saw, and I said to some folks, I said, one of the ways that we can know that we're in a, in a pretty good place spiritually, hopefully, and, and there's some spiritual maturity going on and so forth, is that we can honestly say that I view my own sin in my life, even as a believer, you know, let's say, I view my own sin as being at least as bad as the sin of someone else. And what I mean by that is not that, you know, we as believers uh, are uh, desiring to sin or want to sin or intending to sin, but the simple fact is um, you and I, Son, we are just as guilty of anyone else we might look at, and so humility will, will acknowledge and recognize that and will not look down on someone else and think, wow, you know, uh, they're a bigger sinner than I am.
0: You know, it's an interesting point because you refer to kind of levels of, of wrongdoing that we put upon actions. For example, a little white lie tends to be okay, but yet murder tends to be frowned upon. And when you talked in the article about uh, Saul becoming Paul, Saul was, you know, violently opposed to Christ. You know, he killed Christians, he would persecute them, and then all of a sudden he begu- he begins to love Jesus, starts spreading the gospel message. And many people think that's a simple answer. Oh, yeah, God just changed his heart, which is true. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but it's also, you know, more than it's like more impactful, more powerful than yeah. what people, I think, tend to kind of allude to. Can you just kind of share some uh, uh, yeah. share with us somehow uh, people who are opposed to Christ can then love them, uh, love Christ and, and how that change takes place?
1: Yes, it, it really does require, Son, a supernatural encounter with the Lord. Now, I know for a lot of people, they hear that and think, wow, you know, that sounds way too mystical for me, or or, or, or way too far out there. Well, um, when when a person looks at the claims of Christianity, the claims of the Bible, um, they are out there. I mean, they, they they're dealing with supernatural things, I mean, beginning with, you know, God creating the heavens and the earth, you know, all the way up to the New Testament times, and, and one thing we find uh, throughout uh, both Old and New Testament, Son, and you alluded to this, was, is that the Lord does promise to change a person's heart. In fact, in Ezekiel, the Lord said, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, so it has to be a cleansing first, and then the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So so what God gives to us, uh, and especially today, you know, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. God has given us a new heart, new life in Christ. It begins when our sin is cleansed, when we are forgiven, when we trust Jesus to wash away our sin, but then the Lord comes in there immediately at conversion, and, and he does give us this new spirit, these new attitudes, and, and it is um, incredibly powerful. Now, not everybody has the same experience. What I mean by that is not everybody has the same feelings, but, but in, in the Bible, everyone who is saved is forgiven. Everyone who is forgiven is justified. Everyone who is justified is redeemed. Uh, especially now, when we're talking in the New Testament, when some of this language really kicks in, you know, like the born-again language and and um, uh, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit coming to live within. So uh, it does take a new heart. You know, you ask, how does how does Saul become Paul? How does somebody who is radically opposed to the the message of the gospel how do they start preaching that message? Well, it, it does take a spiritual conversion. But what that requires is simple. Uh, humility before God, repentance of your sins, asking the Lord to forgive you, and then He will do the rest. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you never have any challenges in your spiritual life from that moment on, but there has to be a beginning to a person's relationship with God. And, and you know, it's interesting, um, once in a while, Son, if I'm out and about, and, and maybe I, I run into somebody who's maybe part of one of the popular groups that like to go around and knock on doors and things... Um, one of the things I'll say to these folks very gently, if I have an opportunity to talk to them, is I'll say, hey, I'll say, what did you receive at the beginning of your relationship with God? And I've yet to have one really have an answer for that, They really cause them to think they really don't seem to know what I'm talking about, because in these other systems, Son, there's not this biblical teaching that you need conversion on the front end. What many religious systems teach their people is, If you do enough, if you somehow improve your morality a little bit, if you do a little bit more and and just get a little more serious about your faith, um, hopefully, you know, when all is said and done, you know, the the ledger sheet will show that you've got maybe hopefully more good than bad, and and, then hopefully God will let you in. Of course, it's all grace, you know, they'll say. But but no, it's not. It's not grace if you don't receive something at the beginning. And, And this is why the gift of God must be received in order to begin a relationship with God, in order to um, be converted, and this is why Jesus said, you must be born again. See, man was already very um, diligent in trying to be moral. Uh, We we, we see morality in, in religions all over the world, but there's only one belief system that offers the free gift of eternal life in paradise with the Lord, based not on the merits of man or his own, religious uh, efforts, but based solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where he paid for the sins of the world. So it is an incredible message, and and once it's received by faith, once Christ is received by faith, then this new life begins, and we begin walking with the Lord on a daily basis.
0: Dan Delzell, pastor of Wellspring Church in Papillion, Nebraska, joining us and. And that's the one thing that I think that uh, people, I don't want to say dumb it down, but maybe they simplify the answer. You know, they might say, yeah, God saves, or like we have a uh, famous sign in downtown L.A. that uh, boldly proclaims a neon, you know, Jesus saves, lights up at night. But when you think about it, it's, it's a lot more powerful of a life-changing moment than what maybe sometimes we even can kind of grasp, because we do try to just simplify it and be like, oh, this just happens, but we don't really realize the full ramifications from a spiritual aspect that God has moved in our lives on.
1: Oh, I think that's exactly right, Son. And and in many ways, it takes us a lifetime to to begin to grasp it, and then we've really only scratched the surface of, w- of what Jesus meant with his uh, powerful words in John 3, where he said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit, referring here to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so I think it takes us a lifetime, Son, to just begin to grasp, you know, there was a point in my life, you know, every Christian has a point in their life where the Holy Spirit gave birth to your spirit, um, where you, who were created in the image of God, God is three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you were made in God's image, you are three in one, you are body, soul, and spirit, and your inner being, your spirit, must be born, it must come alive, in order for you to have fellowship with God, because this, after all, is going to become the temple of the Lord. Your inner being will become a place where God dwells. You know, in the Old Testament, of course, um, God went with his people, but he went there with uh, the tabernacle, He went there with the tent of meeting you know there was some distance between god and the people and and they had to be very very careful about getting very close and the priest had you know special privileges in terms of going into the the holy of holies but but you know your average israelite didn't have that kind of access and so uh, god appeared somewhat distant and yet very holy um, very loving toward his people he provided for them but boy when we move into the new testament um, it doesn't get any more personal than the Lord saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to set up camp inside you. Your body, as the New Testament says, will become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and so once we start to wrap our mind around that song and, and and we let Scripture interpret Scripture, you know, we don't just pull out one verse here, one verse there, but we take the whole and, and, and we look throughout, um, you know, both the Old Testament and the New Testament we, we, again, we read in Ezekiel where the Lord says, I'll put my spirit in you and, and move you to follow my decrees. And, and what we start to see as Christians then is like, wow, you know, uh, from the moment I became a Christian, there have been these longings to live for Christ. Now, you know, I also recognize these other desires that can pop in, and boy, I wonder why I still have those. And I wonder why sometimes I look out in the world and I get tempted by things. I mean, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be doing that, right? Well, Um, There are biblical answers for these things, but the bottom line in terms of the issue we're talking about here with conversion is that just as uh, babies are born uh, uh, from their mother, Christians are born uh, of the Holy Spirit, and, and this miracle is something that God works, and you say, well, how does he do it? As people repent and believe the good news, the miracle of this new life, the miracle of this new birth, Takes place on the inside, uh, because we must remember, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, how is it within me? (laughs) Well, you don't get any more of the kingdom than the person of Christ himself, than the presence of God himself. And so, for example, when Paul writes in Corinthians about test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, Paul writes. And and so over and over again, you know, in the New Testament, we see this beautiful and yet very almost mysterious, uh, hard-to-wrap-our-mind-around idea, you mean the God of the universe who created this world and who created me, he's actually dwelling on the inside of me? That is exactly what the Bible teaches for every Christian, Son.
0: Yeah, you mentioned, you know, as Christians we are tempted, and we kind of get shocked by the fact that, you know, we are tempted, or maybe we even give in to temptation, and And again, it goes back to that idea that we need to be perfect, even though the Bible says there is not one righteous, not even one. I've always had this kind of image in my mind that if we entered heaven in our earthly flesh, that there would be that moment when we get to heaven that jaws drop and that people are sitting there in judgment I can't believe that person is here. I can't believe that person. You know what that person did on earth, and they're here? I can't believe <laughs> right. it. You know, and right. I, I kind of I get that because it's almost like that's kind of a, um, a, an attitude that we foster with this perfection. We don't realize that, you know, we are going to sin. We are going to be tempted, and we forget yeah. that there are none righteous, and so we pretend that yeah. we're perfect, and I think that does a disservice to what Christ did on the cross because only he can save. It's nothing we can do, like you mentioned, and only he yeah. can show us the mercy and give us the grace that we need.
1: Well, that, that, that is for sure, Son. You know, as I said a little bit ago, I, I think the way that we view others says a lot about our level of spiritual maturity. Um, am, am I looking at others as though they're bigger sinners than myself? You know, you, you, you point out something that I think is right on, and that is, you know, there's some people that we might think, oh boy, you know, that person will never be in heaven. And yet we don't know uh, where they're at with the Lord, you know, we we don't know everything going on in their life. Um you know, it reminds me of, of uh, what uh, the Lord talked about in Luke 17, where we read, uh, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus went on to say, Son, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what we see in in this parable that Jesus told is that that Pharisee um, would would, would be a, a person who assumes that someone like this tax collector, who, of course, in that day, I mean, they were despised, they were thought of, you know, I mean, these are, these are just among the worst, if not the worst people. I mean, we, we think today, you know, people maybe have issues with the IRS. Well, back in that day, I mean, boy, the tax collectors were about as low as you could get in terms of uh, the way they were viewed, and yet it was this tax collector who was humble before God, uh, he he wasn't judging the Pharisee for his own, you know, self righteousness. I mean, he, I suppose he could have, but but that wasn't where his heart was. It wasn't to, to to come and point out the sins of others. He he merely wanted to bring his sin to the Lord. And so isn't it something, son? How um, you know, well, there there is this temptation, and it's a real uh, trap for people, all of us. You know, um, if if I start to get too caught up on somebody else's sin, it might not only caused me to be filled with pride and self-righteousness, but it, it might actually get in the way of me then just um, humbling myself before God, because, you know, pride and humility, um, they do not mix. And if, and if we remember, you know, even Lucifer, you know, who was uh, one of God's created angels and given a very high calling, and yet the Bible says his heart became proud on account of his beauty, and, and so pride has, has caused many, even angels and of course many human beings, to um, to just put roadblocks between themselves and God, and and here in this parable, the Pharisee is someone that um, we can learn from. I mean, he was religious. He thought, I'm fasting twice a week. I'm giving a tenth of all I get. Well, good for you. You're you're judging this tax collector, though, aren't you? You you, you think you haven't sinned, and and yet the tax collector was fully aware of his sin. So yeah, there's a lot that we can learn from from what uh, from what Jesus taught there in Luke 17.
0: Dan Dozell, pastor of Wellspring Church in Papillion, Nebraska, joining us. He's also an author. He's written many, many books, Kindle books on Amazon, plus a lot of articles for the Christian Post. And we're talking about uh, an article that he wrote, When Christ Saves the Worst of Sinners. And in reference to 1 Timothy, when Paul talks about being the worst of sinners, relating to the fact that he would actively pursue and persecute Christians to the point of death. But in reality, for us, making it relevant today, you know, we don't have to be a killer to be the worst of sinners, because the slightest amount of unrepentant sin can truly separate us from the love of God, can't it?
1: Well, you know, there is a distinction in the Bible, although maybe the the words that I'm thinking of right here don't necessarily get used, but the ideas do. There's a distinction, son, between deliberate sin and hasty sin. Um, you know, already in the Old Testament, you know, I think in the Psalms, where, um, where, where we're told, you know, uh, keep your servant also from willful sins, uh, then I will be innocent of great transgression and, um, and And so what we think of here son is take, for example, a child in in the home. Now, um, you know, children uh, make mistakes, children commit sins, but but if, if there's something that a child is doing intentionally, and so now the parents says, "Hey, no, no, we can't do that again, And then they do it intentionally over and over again. This would be, of course, um, deliberate sin. This would be premeditated. Um, and, and so sometimes, uh, many times, in fact, you know, this is what human beings engage in. Um, that, that they don't merely slip into a sin or fall into a sin or get tripped up, maybe, um, all of a sudden by a sin, but they leap into it, they strategize how to do it, they plan for it, and we're all guilty of that, you know? Um, all of us in our lifetime uh, have committed both deliberate sins and hasty sins, um, I, I guess the point that I'm thinking of here, Sam, though, is that um, deliberate sin is far worse to the soul. It's far worse to a person having a relationship with the Lord, um, because deliberate sin is such a violation of, of anything that is holy, uh, anything that would claim to have a connection with God. And and uh, I'm not saying that you know hasty sin isn't serious to God, because it is. But again, think about a parent. You know, if your child uh, makes a mistake or does something wrong and got you know spurred into it suddenly, you know you're not going to be happy with that. But but if it's something that they're scheming on, that goes to a deeper level of of depravity. And we all have depravity in our soul. Uh, We all have you know what the Bible calls a, a sinful nature. Now that is not our heart, though, son. Our heart. We get to choose every day what our heart is going to um, be involved with thinking about, uh, meditating upon. Um, we don't have to let our sinful nature um, seep into our heart. You know, I, I've used the example of it in, in many ways, and if you read Paul in, in Romans, especially, you know, this struggle between uh, you know the sinful nature and, and then and then the spirit, the Holy Spirit within us. Um, but but I've used the example of of the uh, sinful nature being like the basement room of the soul, you know, for a believer. Once Jesus comes in, once you're born again, as we talked about a moment ago, once your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's like you and the Lord are sitting there uh, in the living room of your home enjoying fellowship. You know, and you, you talk to the Lord, and you you ask Him for help on things, and you you praise Him, and, and you worship Him, and, and, and you study His Word, and, and, and then sometimes, you know, something seems to seep up from from the basement and 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 you're tempted to get up off the off of the couch there where you're sitting with the Lord just enjoying him you know enjoying one another uh and oh you know lord um hey uh i'll be right back and so you get pulled away into something and maybe if you're not careful you you actually take the deliberate step of going down into the basement it's like okay this thing is pulling me this thing is you know drawing me um it wasn't enough that i spent 30 seconds now dwelling on that thought or whatever, um, I'm going to act on it, you know, Uh, I'm going to hold that grudge, or I'm going to give in to that thing, or whatever it might be. So this is a very real battle um, that every Christian experiences. Uh, The difference between a believer and an unbeliever, though, is, is that while both have a sinful nature, okay, according to Scripture, um, the unbeliever does not yet have the Lord sitting with them in the living room of their home. So so they're left to deal with sin all by themselves. They're left to uh, have to somehow, you know, try to be moral uh, with all of those things in the basement that that come from our sinful nature. Meanwhile, without Christ and His blood that was shed on the cross, there's no forgiveness, there's no salvation, you're not born again, you don't have eternal life in heaven yet, you know, until, and unless you repent and believe... So, so everybody faces it, um, but only the believer has the Lord with them. And, and, and I would have to say, son, I think what, what, what happens, just I think we see this play out, is that sometimes, you know, believers even take that very damaging step of living for a little while in premeditated sin. Um, now, it won't last very long, you know, because you'll be miserable. You know, any believer who's trying to live downstairs in the basement. I mean, I'm talking about more than just, you know, 30 seconds or 60 seconds of being pulled away, or just an hour of a distraction. I'm talking about, you know, where now you take a whole day, or a whole week, or a whole month, and you just dive into sin, Yeah, well, Jesus is my Savior. Okay, something's going to give there. Something is going to give, and you both won't be able to continue. I mean, you know, think about King David. I mean, um, you know, when he got tempted by Bathsheba, you know, to use the New Testament analogy, it was like, well, you know, some, um, some feelings, some desires from the basement room started to creep up as he looked out visually. You know, it, this is often how it, it goes, you know. It, it often begins visually. Uh, your mind begins to entertain something that is not of the Lord. The impurity then begins to roll around in the mind. And so the question is, am I going to allow that impurity to roll around for another minute or another half hour or another day? And if it does, there will be absolutely no fellowship with the Lord during that time. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying the Lord has left you? I'm not saying that. Am I saying, well, you know, that just proves you're not a Christian? I'm not even saying that. What I'm saying is, if you are a believer, and if your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you will be as miserable as miserable can be until you repent of that thing and say, Lord, please help me. Lord, please even come down here and get me out of the basement. You know, I mean, I'm so, I I made such a mess of this world. I I don't even, I'm like torn now. I'm even almost double-minded on this thing, you know? So as long as a person will call on the Lord, and, and then the only thing that, that remains is how long do we live in misery? You know, am I gonna am I gonna seek to do this thing for an hour? Am I gonna seek to do this thing for a day? Am I gonna seek to do this thing for a week? And, but something will give, and uh, you will not, as a as a as a believer in Jesus Christ, be able to live that way um, and and have any measure of contentment. And then of course this is where the Bible then kicks in. Says, so well, what about the person who is living that way? And they don't seem to have a problem with it. Well, you know, the Bible says, do not be mocked. Um, uh, A man reaps what he sows. Um, The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. In other words, um, at some point, it becomes pretty obvious, regardless of your profession. You know what I mean? Regardless of what you are professing to believe or not believe, it becomes pretty obvious that either you're a believer or you're not. Because if you are continually... Deliberately giving into sin. I mean, Hebrews, what does it say? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And so I know a lot of people now at that point, or they want to get into the, to the debate, um, and I've entertained it over the years too, but they want to get into the debate well, then can a believer lose their salvation or not? Here's what I would say there's tremendous comfort and assurance for the believer that you are not going to lose your salvation. At the same time, there are incredible warnings directed at the one living in deliverance then, don't assume you're a believer, and it certainly wouldn't even get into the issue of whether you ever were a believer. That's not even brought up, really. Uh, What what, what is brought up is, don't call yourself a believer if you're going to live that way and if you plan to keep living that way. So this whole debate about, you know, can you lose your salvation or not? um, You know, I, I understand it from different sides, uh, I think there's tremendous comfort though for the believer that you are secure in Christ eternally, and there is tremendous uh, there are tremendous warnings for those who are deliberately living in sin and and basically the warnings are um, God cannot be mocked, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows and and so my friend, um if you find yourself there today, um call on the Lord you know you, you might be down in the basement room today. You might say, I'm, I'm like in chains down here. The devil's got me, but I know Jesus is up there, you know, for me, or he'll save me. Just call on him. You know, call on the Lord in your day of trouble. Um, right now, this can be your moment. Just say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, deliver me. Jesus, cleanse me with your blood. Jesus, I've made a mess of things. Jesus, I've gotten entangled in this. I knew better. I was raised better. I was taught better or whatever, you know. So praise God for his mercy, even when we make a mess of things, and, and God loves us. And then if like the tax collector saw, it, we'll say, Lord, have mercy on me. Um, there is plenty of mercy. There's plenty of mercy for those who will call on the name of the Lord.
0: I like that comparison with the deliberate, intentional sin versus kind of the hasty sin, because... In the article, and we're talking with Dan DelZell, he's the pastor of Wellspring Church in Papillion, Nebraska, also wrote an article that we're talking about, which is when Christ saves the worst of sinners, talking about Paul in First Timothy, when he talks about being the worst of sinners, killing Christians, and then becoming a Christian, and an apostle, and an author of parts of the Bible. But when you make that comparison with Saul versus Paul, there's a dramatic transformation. Saul was living deliberate in deliberate sin, killing and persecuting Christians. I'm sure Paul still dealt with the hasty sin and things like that. So like you mentioned, there's not going to be a perfect uh, transformation. There's going to be, but it's dramatic enough of a transformation where you can Mm -hmm. become completely opposite from the character that you were to the character that you're becoming, but you are the same person and people need to realize that, that you can do away. Because I get conversations sometimes where people like well I'm so bad I can't do this or I've done this how can I live uh, a Christian life or how can how can God love me because I've done all these horrible things but the realization is and the example that Saul to Paul gives us is that people really can do away with the Saul in their life and live the Paul that God wants them to be despite whatever they've done.
1: Oh, my goodness, Son, that, that is uh, wonderful, and that is exactly what Scripture teaches. You know, I believe Satan has been very crafty at trying to convince, you know, to convince us, and especially as Christians, that in, in uh, an area of our life where maybe we're struggling, or maybe we, we've had a sin that has um, been defeating us, let's say, we've been giving into. Um, You know, Satan is very good at trying to convince a believer, you know, you're never going to be able to change, that thing's always going to defeat you, and and uh, and so it can. It can overwhelm a person, especially if um, they've not really uh, experienced really any victory over that. Uh, I think about what it says in Titus, where we're told, for the grace of God to bring salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, so here's the assurance, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So both of those are going on in the life of the Christian. Um, you know, you're, you're learning by God's grace to say no to certain impulses, certain desires. Now, do we always get it right? No. You know, uh, maybe early in our Christian life, you know, we'll, we'll come across the phrase, three steps forward, two steps back. We'll say, boy, you know, I can relate to that. You know, I started out with all this excitement, and I figured, man, now sin is in the past. But then it started to creep in some, and I'm like, what's going on here? But then the more we grow in the Lord, uh, Christians really can get to this point, you know, four steps forward, one step back, if you will. Um, Not that we're, you know, keeping a checklist or anything like this or, or patting ourselves on the back, but I think what I hear in your question, Son, is, uh, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is very, very, um, doable. And the apostle Paul experienced it. Um, I, I happen to believe that Romans seven, um, does describe, you know, Paul's life as a Christian. Uh, Paul said, the good that I want to do, I don't do the evil. I don't want to do that. I keep on doing. Well, now, what did he mean by that? I think some people say, well, no, that can't be referring to Paul as a Christian because he wasn't all, you know, living this sinful life. No, he wasn't. Of course not. But but who's to say there that Paul isn't referring to maybe ten-second little lapses here and there where his thoughts go astray, or a 20-second lapse over here where maybe he's tempted to say something or he starts to think something that he shouldn't say. I mean, everybody, I would say every Christian is probably at a different place in their spiritual journey. The Apostle Paul would have had to have had such a uh, a Christ-like lifestyle to have been used the way he was, he certainly wasn't saying, you know, I'm out here preaching this message, but I'm not living it. No. What I believe Paul was saying here to Hassan is that, you know what, I'm striving for perfection, even as Paul wrote in Corinthians, aim for perfection. And, but but ultimately what we find is the only perfect one is Jesus. You know, because as hard as we might um, want to just rely only on Christ and only sit on the couch there with Him and never let the temptations from the basement room of the sinful nature ever creep into our thinking, the bottom line is, sometimes they do. And, and, and I think even uh, the, the, the most mature saints of God would, would acknowledge that, that, that there are times that maybe a, a thought here, or even an action here, that, that, it, that it goes astray. And, and so what I find interesting about this passage in Titus is that what it really teaches us to do is to say no. And I think what we see in the Scriptures, Son, is this. You know, if we will say no to those things that disrupt our peace in Christ, that are not holy, that are not God-pleasing, that are not pure, if by God's grace we will say no, then the wellspring of God's living water within us tends to continue flowing powerfully, the joy continues, everything, you know, we don't have to create it, you know? Um, in many ways, Son, you and I are like the nozzle on the end of the hose, you know, um, and, and God uses us, you know, but the water in the hose, now that's the Holy Spirit, that's the living water. Um, you and I cannot produce that water, but according to uh, the New Testament, what we see is that if we, if we stop saying no, let's say, to something that's impure or wrong or, or directed at somebody that's not a, a, a loving, forgiving kind of attitude, We can definitely quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And then what is the effect of that? Well, the water, as it were, coming out of the nozzle to water the plant, meaning the seed of God's Word, uh, the ministry that we're trying to carry out. Maybe it's the ministry in our family, you know, the ministry to our spouse, the ministry to our kids, or or just to go into the workplace and have a peaceful, loving, patient kind of attitude in the Lord. I mean, that requires some real uh, water from the Lord because we don't have it. We're not capable of that. We hit a limit, and I mean, heck, we're in there in the flesh. You know, we're in there with our own comments, our own words, our own thoughts. We desperately need the living water of the Holy Spirit, and so in, in order to receive that every day in its fullness, then of course our goal, as as is written here in, in Titus, is to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and, and, this is, and then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This, of course, is the process. You know, this is you know, what it means to live the Christian life. Uh, and, and if Satan can't get us to just dive into sin, then, son, I believe he'll try to get us to be so introspective. Well, I wasn't perfect enough here, or I wasn't perfect enough there. And I think many times, what might just say is, why do you keep looking at yourself? I mean, why is it all about you and your perfection? How about me? How about my perfection? How about my presence in you? How about what I've done for you? How about if we spend our focus on that? And, and I think, son, we can be tempted many times, if not to celebrate our successes, and then go off into pride, to so focus on our failures, which really is a, a subtle form of pride, isn't it? Because that is about me. Oh, I knew I couldn't do it. I'm so bad, you know? And so both of those, if we fall off on either side, uh, it can interrupt the flow of God's living water. And so we, we start to see no wonder the Bible says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, you know, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, He alone is the King of kings. And and so, my friend, today, whether you're dealing with, you know, maybe even deliberate sin or hasty sin or, or maybe a thought, like Son mentioned, that, oh, well, how could God ever forgive me or my sin is too great? And let me tell you something, my friend, the blood of Jesus can absolutely wash away whatever you've done. Um, what God is looking to you today to bring to Him is humility, repentance, faith, and He'll, he'll provide them. Um, just, just come close to the Lord, come near to God, and He'll come near to you.
0: Yeah, like, you know, when you mentioned the basement, how these things seep up from the basement, it's like we have to be careful because the basement could ultimately become our dungeon. Because the Bible says, you know, Satan, and I, I would be interested to see how God would write this in today's language, but he writes, Satan is roaming like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And it also goes on to talk about, you know, we're wrestling against, or not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, which I think sometimes people kind of don't really understand spiritual warfare. But, you know, I think in Bible times, probably the lion and the devouring is probably one of the most, you know, dramatic pictures that words could paint probably for that time. And, you know, people sometimes they don't like to believe it or they deny that Satan is real and they really don't understand it. But we really do have to take guard because Satan really is out there trying to destroy us.
1: Well, he is, son. And, you know, I know that there are people in our day who will laugh off this idea of, of the devil and of Satan and so forth. But um, he is definitely real. You know, you quoted, I believe, uh, Ephesians 6, you know, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so when Jesus would, would go around during his earthly ministry and the apostles would go around, you know, we often um, find them casting out demons. You know, just as we've talked here today about the Holy Spirit coming to live, within a believer, you know, Christ living inside the, the believer. So also in New Testament times, as today, um, there are some people who have demons on the inside of them, This is what we mean, demon possession. Now this is an area that none of us know a whole lot about, um, and, and probably it's better that we don't. Uh, what I mean by that is it, it is it is such a powerful, evil reality that, you know, if it wasn't for the Lord, we would be... Um, literally devoured by this this roaring lion and his demons. You know, um, sometimes if I'm uh, maybe working with uh, with youth or even adults, you know, I, I've asked the question, um, well, is the devil everywhere? And, you know, some people have really thought about it. But, yeah, yeah, the devil's everywhere. And then what we talk about is this time, we say, well, no, actually, the devil is one fallen angel. Angels can only be in one place at one time. They're not omnipresent. You know, they can only be in one place at one time. Um, the devil is certainly a powerful angel, but in order to get his work done, he relies on his forces, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so he leads an army of fallen angels. Um, uh, scripture uh, talks about a third of the angels who, who went with Satan. He, he thought he could overthrow, I suppose, God's uh, kingdom. Well, um, that didn't happen. Uh, he, he lost his peace, I guess, in just worshiping his Creator. He had a wonderful existence in heaven, but his heart became proud on account of his beauty. And so now, um, yes, these forces are working. You say, well, what are they doing? Well, if you look at Scripture, it, it becomes pretty clear what they're doing. They're, they're doing anything they can to keep people from being born again. And, and if they haven't been able to keep that from happening in your life somehow, or try to prevent that anyway, uh, not to say that they have ultimate control over that by any any stretch, but if they haven't seen success with that then they'll work on the Christian. You know, they'll make the Christian their target. Because, you see, Christians are such a threat to the devil, because Christians have the one message, they've been given the message, that can set the captives free, that can bring forgiveness into a person's life, and ultimately can lead a person into paradise in heaven. But as we know, you know, even when, when our Lord died on the cross, on, I mean, you know, one of the two thieves was going to go the right way, the other wasn't. One of them, Lord, said, Lord, remember me, kind of like, we, we've seen today with the tax collector, Lord have mercy on me a sinner. The other one, no, he didn't want anything to do with it. And so we're gonna see that in the world, and we do see that in the world. Um some who are swayed by um the teaching of the devil and and others who are coming under this power of the gospel and and so forth. But um yes, your point is well taken that um the devil is real, you know, um but he really he, he really can't get at us um, unless we enter his arena, you know, unless we kind of open up a door in that spiritual realm by giving in to sin, you know, and, and think about that verse where it says, "Son, in your anger do not sin, um, uh, and, and do not go uh, to bed at night angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So in other words, if, if you're holding a grudge, let's say, and you haven't, you know, prayed about it, you haven't forgiven that person, what happens? You go to bed at night angry, You wake up, you haven't slept well, the first thing in your mind is that person, you know, you're holding a grudge against. But now Satan has a foothold. We don't fully understand what that means, but here's how we see it play out. It creates heartache within a person's heart. It it, it creates great unrest, especially if you're a believer, but even if you're not. Um, So when we say, do not give the devil a foothold, um, sin seems to empower his role in our life, just as holy living seems to advance God's work in our life. God is the ultimate author of, of anything holy in our life, and if we will continue by His grace to say no, uh, or as, as to whatever extent we do that, I, I believe what we see in Christian experience and Christian history is that Christians then live a Spirit-filled life, by and large. Um, when we stop saying no, then we start to give Satan a foothold. So now if somebody's done something to me, you know, my life seemed to be going fine, but now i got this person in my life I'm mad at. And have you forgiven them? No, not really, because you don't know what they did. Well, and then if I'm a believer, what I've done is I've given the devil a foothold. doesn't mean you can't get free of it, but um, I, I need to start praying for that person. Oh, I don't feel like praying for that person. Well, of course you don't, you know? You, you become entangled in it. But if you choose to, even when you don't feel like it, guess what? God's going to start to free you. Oh, I see. Maybe that's why the Lord said, you know, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you can be free of it. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and yet there are many Christians who do endure persecution, uh, many who suffer a martyr's death even, and yet they're in heaven today, and they're rejoicing in the Lord, while there are many down here on earth who are kind of doing the devil's bidding and, and who need God's grace. They need to repent and believe there's still time, you know, for them to do that if they're still breathing, if they're still here. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing to import uh, to remember. That's important is that you know we have victory. Jesus died on the cross, rose again. He won the battle. So even though we struggle, we know that we have victory in Christ, and that's a huge blessing to know. We've been talking about it, uh, you know, over the course of the discussion, and you've mentioned it in several different places. But you know, for those that might be a little overwhelmed with maybe with some of the information, maybe they're not so much in the know, maybe we've just forgotten. Yeah. Can you again yeah. just kind of share with us, kind of in a in a in a capsule nutshell? how someone can receive the forgiveness, enter the kingdom of heaven, convert or transform themselves from Saul to a Paul.
1: Yes, thank you, Son. Well, I'll tell you, my friend, um, if, if you're not yet at a place where you're walking with the Lord, if you're not yet on that, that road to heaven, or if you're not sure that you are, then, then the best thing you could do today would be um, to be sure. And and the way that you could do that today, regardless of your past, is to take what what you're hearing today and and just to turn your heart to the Lord. You know, um, uh, everyone who turns to the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who repents of their sin and calls upon Jesus' name and and trusts in His cross, receives forgiveness. So it is a simple transaction. Um, It is a transaction whereby you bring your sin to the Lord, you you don't try to sugarcoat it. You you don't try to make excuses for it. Um, You you simply say, Lord, I have no defense. You know, I'm guilty. I've broken your commandments. I've not fully honored my father and mother. I've not always thought pure thought. I've not always just forgiven people instantly for things they've done against me. I've not always said pure words. I've not always allowed just the purity of God and Scripture and prayer to fill my mind, and so on and so forth. So, doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, you're a miserable person, you're hopeless, far from it. What it means is, like everybody else, you're a sinner. And so, like that tax collector that Son and I talked about today, if you'll say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But then it's more than just, you know, asking for mercy. It is specifically looking to that one who died to pay for your sin, who died as a sacrifice for your sin. And and so the transaction is that you bring your sin to the Lord, and you say, Lord, I believe. I-, I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. I, I want to follow you. I want-, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. And-, and-, and so you surrender your life to the Lord. You trust in him as your Savior. Um, granted, you-, you don't know much about it yet. But the one thing you do know is that Jesus died for you, that he, he paid for your sins, and that you want that now. You want that. You know you need it. And so you, you humbly say to the Lord, Lord, please forgive me, and I'll tell you what, that's what God is doing all over the world today. There are people coming into the kingdom of God today. You might be one of them. And, and as Oswald Chambers wrote, he said, you know, the reason it's so easy to receive salvation is because it costs God so much. And that is so true, my friend. You say it's so easy to receive. Now, what you're going to find out is it's not easy to live the Christian life. It's not always easy to do the right thing. It's not easy to take up your cross and follow the Lord. It's not easy to do things when maybe family members or friends or co-workers are not in that flow that you're in. That's not going to be easy. So, you know, just know going into this, there will be hurdles, there will be challenges, but the Lord, remember, where He's at, He'll be inside of you. So, um, you know, your body will become His temple um, through faith, not through your works, not through your religious rituals, not through, as the Pharisees, uh, you know, said in that passage we read there, um, not not through, you know, tithing or giving a tenth of all I've got, you know. Those things are not how a person becomes a Christian. You become a Christian by repenting, turning to the Lord, trusting in Jesus, and you receive forgiveness and eternal life, and God says, hey, you know, let's walk together forever. Um, you will worship me. I will watch over you. We're going to have a great, you know... Uh, great interaction with, with all of my children, welcome to the family, and just think about the way Jesus hung out with his disciples on earth. I mean, you, you just picture how, um, how beautiful that was, and, and that's what can happen with you today, my friend. Don't focus on what you've done. Don't even focus on, you know, um, any rituals or religion that you might be doing today. Focus on Christ, and God will do the rest.
0: Dan Delzell, pastor of Wellspring Church in Papillion, Nebraska, thanks so much for your time. Again, talking about when Christ saves the worst of sinners, and just remember, if you think you were a Saul, you can become a Paul, just as Pastor Dan was uh, mentioning there. Thanks so much. Uh, where can people find you if they want more info?
1: Well, I tell you, um, they could go to our, uh, our church website, um, wellspringpapillion.church, As you mentioned, Son, I am the pastor of of Wellspring Church here in Papillion. Um, There there are also a lot of articles that I've written on the Christian Post, so that might actually be the better site to check out than our church website, although I do have a blog on there. But um, actually, if you just go to the Christian Post uh, or just um, you know Christian Post, Dan DelZell, and then um, there are a lot of articles there you could check out to deal with a lot of these issues that Son and I uh, have talked about today.
0: Thanks so much, Pastor. We look forward to the next time.
1: Oh, I sure do too, Son. Thank you very much.
0: Special thanks to Dan Delzell, pastor of Wellspring Church in Papillion, Nebraska. And that's going to do it today for the show. Hey, thanks for listening, and do tell a friend. You can check out the podcast at edomrocksradio.podbean.com. Until next time, God bless.